From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is Emilio San Pedro with the Eurovision News Podcast. With the COP26 climate summit around the corner, global media attention on climate change is at an all-time high. This tends to happen around these events, but the same focus isn't always there once they've ended. To discuss the media's handling of the climate change story and get a handle on how dire the climate crisis is, we invited Professor Jim Ski of Imperial College in London, a senior figure on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, to discuss his assessment on how he feels the news media is performing in covering this complex topic. Jim Ski is one of the leaders of the IPCC's Working Group 3, the group that calculates emissions from energy systems, transportation, and other parts of the economy. They're on the front line of what climate change could mean globally and what it will take to stop it. He's also the co-author of the 2018 special report on 1.5 degrees, a report that simply altered the public debate on climate change. Jim, we've seen these summits uh, come and go. Lots of focus goes on them, right? As they're about to happen, a sense of urgency emerges and environmental news coverage rockets. There's so much coverage of environmental stories ahead of them. But then they end and the feeling is that things kind of return to normal. How do you feel about that? Well, well, every summit's important, uh, but some are more important than others. I mean, the two big landmarks since the Climate Convention was signed would have been the, the Pro Kyoto Protocol in 1997 and then the, the Paris Agreement in 2015. And just to be clear, we're not expecting something like a Glasgow Agreement this time round. But the reason Glasgow is probably the most important one uh, since the Paris meeting in, in 2015, is it's the first major check on how well the Paris Agreement is being implemented. So there's going to be a hard look at all the pledges that countries have made through their so-called nationally determined contributions, what they add up to, and it will be the start of the process by which there's a, a global stock take as provided for in the Paris Agreement, of just how the extent to which we're on track for meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. And is there a sense that countries are on track since Paris? I think the message has been very clear that, uh, you know, the, the UN Environment Programme Gap Report has just come out and it demonstrates that there's been a lot of progress over the last few years, since 2010. The ambition of the pledges has gone up and we are closer uh, to where we need to be if we were to limit warming to 1.5 or for that matter even 2 degrees but we still have some way to go so it is far from being in the bag uh, you know that the kind of the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement can be met So the big players at these summits are of course the scientists we've got the politicians and then we've got the journalists and the big media delegations that also show up there. And of course, there's also the people outside. Many times uh, environmental activists hold uh, demonstrations and protests outside of these events to highlight uh, their concerns. But in the case of the media, how would you uh, grade how the news media is getting this story? Are we getting it right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I recall, uh, you know, the former British Prime Minister's uh, Winston Churchill's statement, you know, that politicians complaining about the press was like uh, sailors complaining about the sea. So I, I have a realistic kind of view on this. I, I, I don't know, I'd give seven, seven or eight out of ten because I think the coverage that I have seen over the last few weeks has actually been very balanced and very fair about the situation as reflected that what people said. Now, just to say that in the past, we have had our frustrations with some aspects of the reporting. And I recall, you know, the special report on warming of 1.5 degrees three years ago, when the big headline was uh, 12 years to save the world, which was something, of course, that we never actually said in that way. But I have to say it advertised the report quite nicely. So, so, so in, in that sense, uh, it gave us the opportunity to clarify our messages and follow up on that later. So I'm going to give a pretty high score, actually. I'm happy. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, how does a phrase like that, 12 years to save the world, help or, or hinder? Well, it's, uh, it's hindering in the sense that it gives the impression that if you do not get to a given target by the year 2030, which was what it referred to, that we fall off a cliff and that we failed completely and there's nothing to be done and that it, in, it inhibits action. And so I think that, you know, that, that's the worry about the hindering, because actually the message is that every little extra bit of effort counts at the end of the day. We may not have hit a given ta target, but frankly, the difference between 1.51 and 1.5 degrees isn't the end of the world. It's, you know, another incremental kind of change. And as I've said already, I mean, the good bit of it is it does catch the headlines and advertise your report as long as we get the chance to explain it afterwards. And I can't believe the number of talks I've given where I spent the th first three minutes saying what we didn't say rather than what we did say. But it's a good lead in. And I guess the danger is that uh, those who one could call, say, climate deniers, climate change deniers might grab onto something like that and say, see, it didn't happen or they're exaggerating again, that kind of thing. Yeah, it, I, I don't think that it's so much a question of exaggeration there. I, I think the, the question is, I mean, we do to think uh, think quite hard about how to message our reports uh, because, you, you know, they can induce hope and they can induce despair. And we need to get that balance uh, properly. I mean, it's, it's a mixture of both. We have made some progress, but we still have a long way to go if we're going to meet the, the Paris goals. Because I guess there is a certain thing you could, that could happen, which is if the despair is such despair, then people may just think, well, why bother making any changes? Exactly, and and that is why uh, you know, that we need to need, need to emphasise you know the kind of positive things that are happening as well. We have seen you know very significant costs in the fall of key technologies on the road to decarbonisation. You know, solar PV, wind batteries for electric vehicles, they've all come down dramatically in terms of cost. And we mustn't forget the positive things that happen. A big, big proportion of the world's emissions are now covered by net zero commitments uh, from different countries, including from key developing countries as well as developed countries. And uh, I think that's a very, very positive step. Now, here at the Eurovision News Exchange, the news team right outside this office, uh, is busy always looking for material coming from all of our members in Europe and other parts of the world who are submitting uh, material on weather events, on climate stories. And we struggle, to be honest, sometimes uh, with this idea of when is it a weather story and when is it 
a weather story that is so severe, it's a severe weather event that requires looking at it as a climate story. Yeah. Now, just to say right, right, right up front, I'm not a physical climate scientist, so this is this is not my area of expertise. But I listen to and talk to my colleagues who are, uh, you know, in in a lot of detail about this. And I think one of the big advances that came from the physical science report that came out in August that got a a lot of the attention with the with the code red for humanity kind of headlines was that we can now identify some weather events which would not have occurred had humanity not contributed to global warming in the way that the way that it has so there are some events that are beginning to have the fingerprint of climate change on them though the other point to make is it's also a matter of statistics as as well it's not just one single event if we see big events intense weather events happening more and more frequently that accumulation of knowledge about is, is just as important or even more important than the single event data. Now, going back to where we are in relation to progress being made, you mentioned that lots of progress has been made in decarbonization. Uh, the warnings from uh, the Paris uh, Agreement or the, the discussions in Paris were that we couldn't warm the planet by more than 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius. Are we on track or is there real work that you can see in that regard? Yeah, and, and just to say, I mean, the Paris ag Agreement uh, was quite nuanced as diplomatic agreements you tend to be. It, you, it was a tar The goal was well below two degrees, pursuing efforts towards 1.5. But I think since then, the kind of evidence that's come out from the subsequent IPCC reports have led some governments to place more emphasis on the 1.5 uh, you level and certainly keep 1.5 alive has been one of one of the themes of, of this particular COP, COP presidency. But I, you know, I have to say, you know, the the working group one report, the physical science report that came out, said that without immediate action, and the word immediate I think is a key one, uh, that you know the 1.5 uh, a 1.5 goal would become beyond reach. So it's really hanging on a thread at the moment. If we delay much longer, I think uh, the evidence from the physical science report is that 1.5 will will become beyond reach. Now, ahead of the COP26 summit, uh, the host nation's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, the pr Prime Minister of the UK, he set out what he thought were the key elements uh, for this uh, uh, summit. And he said it would be about coal, cars, cash, and trees. He has a flair there for, for words, as we know, and, and, uh, and all of that. But when we talk about uh, coal, what do you think he meant there? Well, I obviously don't have Boris Johnson's talent for alliteration, but uh, you, you know, you know, what, were, what I think he meant is that many of the scenarios, and I'll choose my words carefully here because we, we, we don't do prescriptions in IPCC, that in the scenarios that limit warming to one and a half degrees, coal pretty much disappears from all electricity systems globally by the year 2050. And I think, you, you know, it, that's a slightly more uh, sober uh, way of stating, uh, you, you know, I, I think what, what the UK Prime Minister um, said there. So coal, uh, you know, 
if you're going to limit warming to one and a half degrees, coal will have to go down very substantially. And uh, the, the scenarios that limit warming to two degrees, they're not quite as extreme as that, but they're still pointing in the same direction. And it's not just coal, is it? No, the, 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 the question of oil and gas is, 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 is obviously uh, you know, significant as, w as well. And that is a big challenge and perhaps a, almost a bigger challenge because oil is very much tied up with transportation systems, which I think are much more difficult uh, to decarbonize. There are readily available low carbon solutions in the electricity sector where coal is largely used. Transportation, although battery electric vehicles are coming along for private cars and three wheelers, um, it's not the case for heavy goods vehicles, aviation. We, 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 it's a more of an uphill struggle, I think, to get the kind of change that might be needed. And what about cars? Is How dramatic does the change have to be? Well, it, it depends what you mean by dramatic and, and you know, in terms of people's, pe pe people's lives. I mean, you, you will still have a piece of piece of metal that weighs about a ton whizzing around the road, regardless of whether it's propelled by electricity or petrol or, 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 or diesel. Uh, obviously, there are changes in the way you need, to, you, you need to invest in charging systems as well as getting people to buy them. The manufacturers need to be tooled up with production lines uh, to get them ready. But all of these things appear to be happening. Uh, at, at the moment, you know, it, where governments have invested in charging systems, the manufacturers are investing in new production lines, and there are signs that consumers are starting to picking them up. And it's not—it's it, not as if you're you, you're driving an old milk float or something with an old-fashioned battery. These vehicles can accelerate, and it, you know, a pe a, an electric-driven uh, vehicle can accelerate much more effectively than a petrol one. So the the former petrol heads may actually quite like them in some ways. Mm. <laughs> and what about cash? What did he or could he have meant by that? Well, I, I think there's, there's an obvious reference to one of the goals uh, in the, the Paris Agreement, which is to enhance financial flows from uh, developed countries to developing countries. And that, that's certainly certainly one part, part of that. The countries need to step up and make things happen. Some developing countries have made their pledges, their nationally determined commitments, conditional on additional flows of finance. So moving the, the kind of the different goals of the Paris Agreement are interlocked. They fit, fit together with each other. There are also challenges at a much more country level around who is going to pay, uh, you know, electric vehicles cost more up front, though they may be cheaper to run after you've got them. So for people who don't have ready access to capital, how do you actually make that change? The cost of moving from gas-fired boilers in a country like the UK to heat pumps also means more upfront costs. So the question of who pays for that and, you, you know, and the equity issues are going to be very, very critical. Because that's one of the key questions and concerns, isn't it? And it's developing countries, but it's also uh, less wealthy people in wealthy countries as well who look at these uh, proposals and think, where do I fit in to all of this? How can I actually partake when this is actually could bankrupt me in some cases? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just I mean, I have an interest in this in another sphere because I'm I'm chairing a just transition commission in my native Scotland that is considering these very kind of equity issues, and it is 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 not an, an easy problem to address. And actually, you can't really address it without getting into much more granular detail 
about it. You know, for example, you look at the heat pump issue, people who live in social housing, uh, the social housing sector in the UK has actually moved most quickly because it's easier to get that public money going. Uh, private rented rented properties is a different proposition. You can put in regulations when tenancies turn over to get it. But probably the hardest bit to get to is owner occupiers of houses because uh, they would need to put up some of their own money. But it's going to be very difficult to get over their over that hurdle and provide possibly the right kind of aid packages you know, to help people just jump over it because it's obviously unfair. Uh, frankly, if people who can't afford to pay for it kind of get away with it and get the subsidies, uh, but uh, uh, people on lower incomes do not because they can't get over the, the hurdle in the first place. And I guess that also goes from that uh, personal level to the question of how developing countries will, will deal with this issue. Yeah, I mean, international equity is is absolutely critical on, on this as well, which is why one of the three goals of the Paris Agreement is to enhance the financial flows and also get the technology transfer and cooperation going as well. And it's a really important part of the Paris Agreement because it under it unlocks the potential to reduce emissions, because frankly, developing countries will not uh, want to take on ambitious and uh, very expensive reduction measures unless they, they, they are sure that these will be paid for in such a way that it doesn't damage their economies. And when Boris Johnson was referring in that phrase to trees, is he talking about, say, for example, when you get to travel somewhere and you feel a bit guilty, your carbon footprint uh, might have been a bit bigger than you liked, so you pay for some trees to be planted, or is it something a lot bigger than that? Well, I, 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 I can only surmise what the UK Prime Minister said, said in one word, but just to, to flag up that the issues of trees and the way that land is used is going to be a very important part of the picture. It's not just, not just energy. So land use in general is going to be much more important. And it's quite clear that planting trees and retaining the trees that we have already is a very important part of the picture. In, in terms of, of, of trying to mitigate climate change. And I think because of the financial flows of money may well be induced, for example, by cities or companies taking on net zero targets in the developed world. And in order to do that, buying permits, buying, buying credits from other countries that will pay for measures taken in the developing world. And that in general is a positive thing, but it brings risks because these credits have to be regulated and appraised really carefully to make sure that they're not, you know, greenwashing and that the emission reductions are actually real. So the rules around these things are going to be absolutely critical. And it particularly, I think, applies to the land use because the measurement verification issues are really tough in the land use sector, much harder than they are for the energy system. Now, going back to the reporting on climate change, a lot of the reporting sometimes looks at how an individual, uh, a group of people can make certain changes in their life, uh, be it eat less meat or drive less, uh, take different uh, approaches to their consumption levels, that would make a huge difference. Others think it has to be on a much broader scale. Is it a combination or can just individuals making small changes make a difference? 
Yeah, I think one of the conclusions from that special report on warming of one and a half degrees is that there's no one measure or one approach that's going to solve the problem for us. It needs needs to make progress on all fronts. And of course, that raises you know, challenges, I think, for politicians and governments, because you do need to prioritise and, uh, and focus. Uh, so, uh, you know, behaviour and lifestyle could be part of the solution. But let me make very clear, one thing that IPCC will never get caught doing is telling people what to eat or how to live their lives. Uh, we can approach it scientifically with our if-then statements and say, for example, if people were to eat diets that were in accordance with health guidelines, greenhouse gas emissions would fall. You know, which is 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 a, is a, is a case. When we did our special report on climate change in land, we did address the question of diets, but we worded it very carefully, never to tell people what to do, but to point out the consequences of the different choices, which were up to them. Mm. So it's it's a way to kind of hint and make some suggestions, but not be prescriptive. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And looking now to. Looking at the situation as we see it, we talked about how people can look at these reports with dread, really, and think, you know, that old phrase, we're all going to die, you know, that journalists uh, bat around sometimes in newsrooms yeah, yeah. about all the stories that we're always uh, reporting yeah. on. Uh, that can have a negative effect because then people just lose all optimism or any kind of idea that we can move forward and make this work. Uh, as a scientist who's been working on this for so long, are you still optimistic? Yeah, yeah well, well, I'm a naturally optimistic. I'm a naturally optimistic person. Let's say I don't. I I do not uh, lie awake at nights worrying about the future of the planet. I leave that for the morning when I get to work, and it's much more rolling up the sleeves and and trying to get on with it. But I mean, I think the message is there is a lot of things that humans have agency to do about this. We've got ourselves into a very difficult situation because the carbon dioxide accumulates in the atmosphere, but there are still many, many things that we can do. And every single piece of action actually does make a difference in the end by reducing the impacts that we will have on the climate system and avoiding some of the impacts which will largely fall on less privileged people, more vulnerable groups. So that's the kind of message we want to get across. And just to say that you know, with the IPCC reports, they kind of go through a cycle. We start with the physical science, uh, and, and you can see the Code Red for Humanity message that came out of that. Then we will produce the report on impacts and adaptation. And without anticipating it, because it is impacts, it will be worrying. And then in Working Group 3 on mitigation, we come and said, well, this is what we can potentially do to avoid uh, some of these issues. So if you see the three reports as part of a narrative that joins up, I hope at the end of the day, we do not leave people with a sense of despair. Great. <laughs> Thank you for that. So we've got to the point now where we want to invite some of my colleagues from uh, the newsroom here at the Eurovision News Exchange to come in and ask you a few questions uh, that they've uh, come up with uh, ahead of this interview. So uh, without further ado, I'll just uh, step out of the way and allow my colleague Rasha to introduce herself to you with the first question. Hi, Rasha. Hello. How are you? I, I, I am very well, very busy, but glad to do this. So no problem. Yes, thank you for your time. My name is Rasha and I'm in charge of News Events Partnerships, 
we've been working and preparing a lot for COP26, and I have a question for you. We hear, we hear a lot about climate bonds, about green bonds, as a way for corporations and organizations to fund the sustainability part of their business. Um, can you explain to us, uh, well, what is it exactly and, and what do you think of all of this? Uh, I mean, the, the financial sector you, you know, has, a, has a huge role to play because, frankly, we do need you know, to deploy money in order, order to, to work towards net zero or, or get emissions down to any level. And there are very clear signs that like the banking system has stepped up to it. There's a big interest in financial disclosures from companies to inform the financial sector about the risks uh, they face when they're investing in, in specific companies. And company, uh, companies like insurance companies, for example, they invest as well as take out insurance policies. And they're now on these and pension funds are much more thinking about how they can invest in the technologies that will take us in the right direction. One of the challenges that is faced is that many of these funds like to invest in big bundles, you know, 50 or 100 million dollars at a time. And many of the measures that we need to take to address climate change are actually quite small scale, involving farmers and households. And some of the big challenges is how you get financial mechanisms and innovative financial kind of products that help to bridge that gap between the 50 or 100 million and the few thousand that are needed at the level of individual products. So the financial sector, I'm sure, is, is starting to think about it. Say, I'm, I'm not an expert, but that bridging the challenge, it's easy to fund a one gigawatt offshore wind project. Believe it or not, although the people who do it won't think it's easy, it's relatively easy compared with all the small-scale distributed stuff. Thank you so much. Hi, uh, I'm Eitan Toledo. I work as a news producer here at uh, uh, Eurovision News. Um, and my question is specifically within the more kind of political angle of things, uh, within the context of the upcoming uh, COP26 uh, meeting. Um, how much do you think or to what extent do you think that legislation alone um, is enough to stop drastic climate change uh, at this point? Well, I mean, the, the, the key question with leg legislation, many countries have now put in place pieces of climate legislation, you know, for net zero, uh, you know, it, European Union, UK have, have all done these, the, these kind of things. That doesn't mean it's going to happen without translating legislation into more specific policies and measures. Because, uh, you, you know, frankly, the legislation in a way, if you're sitting in a big company, it kind of sets the mood music for decarbonisation and mood music is very important and it's very and Paris really changed the mood music in a big way but it's the specific measures you know the feed-in tariffs the regulations the carbon taxes these are the things to which com uh, you know companies and people respond so beyond the legislation there is actually a need for specific measures to be put in place and they count a lot but you will not also not get these measures without the legislation. So, so let's not be disrespectful to it. It's incredibly important, but it's the first step on a journey, I think. Thank you so much for uh, being a, such a great sport about this, uh, Jim. And I'm sorry, I think we're, we're kind of overrunning at this point. So just uh, very quickly, uh, we are recording this podcast ahead of the COP26 summit for all listening to know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not asking you to get out a crystal ball, as it were, but what would you think success would look like out of this summit? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, just to say, it's it's a very complex negotiation. So we, we can tick some boxes, but not others. The big, big success would obviously be if, if many, many countries stepped up with more ambitious, nationally determined contributions. And that's not just in respect of emission reductions. It would be in respect of finance as well. But it's a very technical negotiation, and there's some technical progress that could be made. There are bits of the so-called Paris rule book on implementation that haven't been finished that. So these things that are not going to hit the headline is perhaps for more technical negotiations. I would count as successes if they work, although they might not you, you know, be, be the things that are most prominent afterwards. Thank you, Professor Jimski. Thank you so much for speaking to us uh, here on the Eurovision News Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. That's all from us in Geneva. If you enjoyed this program and would like to support us, please consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also comment on EBU's social media platforms or simply tell a friend how to find us.